Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm your host, Joe Haddo, and I hope wherever you are in the world, you're staying safe and well and wearing a mask when you're out and about. Welcome to Series 6. Unbelievably, we are here, and if you're a new listener, a very warm welcome to you. There are loads of backlisted episodes for you to check out, should you wish. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. It's lovely to have you with us. If you're listening via iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please do take a moment to rate and review Book Off, as it really helps us to spread the word to a wider audience. And if you're of the social media persuasion, then do give us a little shout out and say hello, because we always love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Off. In this episode, as always, I'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be battling it out in a war of the words a little later on in the book off. We recorded this uh, during lockdown, uh, so it was recorded a couple of months ago, and so the interview is not in full quality. It was recorded over the internet, but hopefully you'll still find it entertaining. Anyway, enough from me. Let's meet our guests. I'm joined by a best-selling author and screenwriter and playwright who over his career has brought us a bounty of amazing books, including the Alex Ryder series, his Sherlock Holmes novels, and his Bond books too, as well as writing Foils War and Midsummer Murders. He's recently published a new whodunit called Moonflower Murders, which we'll be talking about today. Anthony Horowitz, hello, welcome to Book Off. Very pleasant to be here, Joe. Very happy to be here. Uh, and also I'm joined by a presenter, a producer and now novelist who will be known to many from the incredibly popular BBC One show Pointless. In fact, many of us, including myself, will be picturing him now sat behind a desk in a suit looking resplendent and intelligent. Here to talk about his new novel, The Thursday Murder Club. It's Richard Osman. Hello. Hello, Joe. How are you? Really well, thank you. And, and all the better for having you and Anthony on the podcast to launch and you our are, you are, new you are, series. You are quite right. I am sitting currently behind a desk in a suit jacket in a, in a completely empty television studio, just waiting for everybody to come back. <laughs> and hopefully it won't be too much longer, eh? Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Usually we'd be sat around a table in a studio sipping coffee uh, and we'll all have met and chatted before starting. But obviously we're uh, we're still in lockdown when this is being recorded and we're all in different locations. So Anthony, Richard, Richard, Anthony. 
I, Hello, to me, Richard. I, I wish, uh, you know, I'm such a fan of Pointless, of course, and your and your other quiz shows, Richard. So I'm very sad that we're not actually able to have a drink and to see each other uh, in the flesh, so to speak. But um, but I also loved your book. So it's very nice to be talking to you. Well, this is very kind. And let's, let's start off on a good foot. I loved your last one as well. I wish we were meeting in person as well, because I've got an awful lot of books that you could have signed. But listen, <laughs> these, uh, these are the days in which we find ourselves. Indeed. There'll be t- there'll be time for for signings in the future, no doubt, Richard. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's great that, that we're all getting off on a good foot because uh, later on in the podcast, for any new listeners, um, Richard and Anthony will be going head to head in a war of the words, where each will get a chance to pitch to us a book that they absolutely love and they think that everyone should read. But to start with, I want to talk about both of your new novels. And Anthony, if I could come to you first, uh, I want to talk about this new book, which which probably it wasn't intended to be written, I don't believe, but um, it has been written. <laughs> You're quite right. I mean, some years ago, I wrote a book called Magpie Murders, which was a, a book within a book. It was a story of an editor, Susan Ryland, who discovers that the solution to a modern murder is concealed inside a book that she edited, uh, the author of which, Alan Conway, is dead. And the book was probably my most successful murder mystery book. I think it was also my first, actually, and I think about it. But anyway, it did very well. So my publishers were very keen on me doing a sequel, added to which uh, Magpie Murders is about to be on television. It's going to be filmed next year. And the producers wanted a sequel. So everyone was saying do a sequel. And to my surprise, a sequel sort of fell into my head. And that is Moonflower Murders, which picks up with Susan Ryland some years after Magpie Murders, um, now living in Crete and getting involved in a second murder mystery, the solution to which is also inside one of the books she edited. And we find her in uh, Crete at the beginning of the book, and life isn't quite as easy as it should be for her, is it? Well, at the end of Magpie Murder, she's lost her job, she's been hurt, uh, she's she's been ostracised, and she is alone, although with a, a boyfriend, and she's trying to run a hotel in Crete, which is not going very well. And um, in fact, she's thinking of packing it all and coming into England when a couple turn up and they tell her a story about a murder that took place on the wedding night of their daughter eight years before. A man was arrested. The daughter always said that it was the wrong man and that the police had made a mistake. The daughter has recently read an, an Atticus Punt novel and has become absolutely certain that a mistake was made and knows who the real murderer was, but she's disappeared. And this is enough to get Susan onto the next plane back to England to investigate both the murder that took place in the hotel and the murder in the book she edited and to see how the two of them connect. I've been asking guests on the on the last series, which was sort of recorded during the, the beginning of what, what was our lockdown period, about how their creativity has been, because I know that a lot of people have have just not been able to concentrate, whether that be working on projects they started or or even just simply getting stuck into a book. How has it been for you, Anthony? Well, I've been very busy. I've been doing a lot of writing. I mean, I've already started to work on a new whodunit with my other character, Daniel Hawthorne. So I've been as busy as ever. But I have to say that I found it quite difficult in many respects. That what used to take me five or ten minutes somehow now takes me two hours. And the days are strangely (laughs) elastic in the sense that they seem to go on forever, but they're over very quickly. Uh, Do you know that feeling where you suddenly get to five o'clock, which is when I would normally turn on pointless, of course. uh, And um, and suddenly the day day has just vanished. And um, that I found strange. It's a sort of a sense of being even more. I I mean, I joke that I've been self-isolating for the last 35 years, but I'm even more (laughs) isolated than I was uh, then. (laughs) How's it been for you, Richard, uh, these past few months? In terms of creativity, I did in January, I'm going to take six months off TV just to concentrate on writing the 
the second novel. So I said, I'm not going to do any TV work for six months. I'm just going to sit at home and write. And, you know, you be careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, so, I mean, yeah, in terms of time, it's fine. I'm going to hit a deadline, which I think might be a, a record for the publishing industry. My only thing, here's, here's the current problem I've got. I don't know if any other authors have got this problem. And Anthony will tell me if this is the case. So we just found out we're going back into studio, right, to do some House of Games. And so obviously over lockdown, I put on two stone. So I've got to lose <laughs> two stone quite quickly so i'm on a diet now i find i now i'm almost incapable of writing because i'm really hungry uh and i don't know if that you know some of the great poets of old who couldn't write a poem without a drink in them i worry now i can't write a novel without being carb loaded that's my that's that's my (laughs) lockdown concern i need i need more sugar somehow I actually find the opposite, Richard. You know, I try, I never have breakfast if I can avoid it anyway, uh, okay. because I find that if I'm actually hungry, it encourages me to write faster. So then I can say I, I can oh, I'll have lunch as soon as I finish the chapter, sort of burning up sort of something inside me. To... That, that uh, Tony Blair famously used to not go to the loo before a speech because he felt it gave him more of an intensity uh, <laughs> and just more of a sense of urgency to, to, to his speaking. So he'd, he'd, never, he'd never go to the loo. So that's your version of that, right? <laughs> I'm, tem- I'm tempted to say that's why so much of what he said was so full of um, you know what. But um... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so Anthony, Anthony sort of starves himself, uh, and and you yeah. should feed yourself. So they're the they're the sort of opposites. <laughs> but I'm am I right in thinking you are quite a big crime fiction fan as a reader? Yeah, absolutely, I am, and you know that's why I'm delighted that um, Anthony back to doing whodunits you know because they're always an absolute treat and i've always been a huge crime fan and you know i've always been a i think you know i was only came to the public consciousness maybe 10 years ago as a tv presenter but i've been a writer for many years and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a tv executive and creative and all that kind of stuff and the thing that i've always read for pleasure has been crime fiction and so naturally that was the you know i'd always wanted to write a book but anthony will tell you this it's, it turns out it's really really hard Uh, and every time I've started over the years something gets in the way and I've been doing something else and yada yada and then about four years ago I I just sort of thought come on you know now's the now's the time Uh, and yeah I've never made television shows that I wouldn't watch that's always been my rule there's plenty of people in tv who do and so I Mm. definitely would never write a book that I wouldn't read and wouldn't be in a genre that I enjoyed and so crime was perfect for me and also you don't have to read any books about how to write because you've sort of it seeped into the bones when you're writing a crime book you know what you can play with you know the tropes you can use you know the angles that uh, you can have a bit of fun with and so it was i don't think i could have written any other sort of book really if i may say so richard i think one of the pleasures of reading the thursday murder club is that love of golden age particularly detective fiction oh. and sort of classical detective fiction permeates it it absolutely glows out of the pages and you could tell from reading it that what you just said was the case oh that's very kind thank you and do you want to tell us a little bit about the thursday murder club richard yeah. for those that haven't picked it up yet for sure. I, I went to visit um, the relative of uh, the mother of a friend a few years ago in a beautiful retirement village uh, down, down in the West Country. And it's a really beautiful place, you know, completely independent, not an old people's home, but just a place got a restaurant, it's got a gym, a pool, it's got a beautiful kind of land, lakes and all sorts of things. Uh, and when I was there, I, I thought, wow, this is such a great sort of location for a murder, is the truth. Cause, you know, it's got that, that sort of beauty and it's cut off slightly and there's no mobile reception. Uh, and then the the longer you spend there with these people, everyone there is 70 or above, uh, and you have such a laugh, and everyone's drinking all the time, and everyone's <laughs> got stories. And I just thought, well, if there was a murder, then somebody here would solve it, that's for sure. So as soon as I thought, well, look, here's a place for a murder, 
and here's my here are my detectives um i literally went uh, and, and started writing the next day and the idea is it's four people in their 70s um and once a week they meet up to solve uh, cold cases they got one of their founding members used to be in the police and they sit and have a couple of glasses of wine and try and solve uh, unsolved cases and then there's a real murder on their doorstep and suddenly they're thrown into that and the key for me is it's, it's a very sort of cozy setup where it is this quite cozy thing. Oh, and four people in the seventies, how lovely, how charming. I thought, <laughs> no, don't write it cozy. You know, so I really throw the kitchen sink at this gang, you know, and bad stuff happens to them. But one of them is a former spy, one of them was a former trades union leader, one's a former nurse, one's a former um psychiatrist. So between the four of them, these sort of gentle, innocent souls, they've been through everything. They've done everything and they can respond to everything you throw at them. And they sort of try, you know, they turn the investigation on its head. They're just a joy to write and so you know you can just put this lovely little murder mystery through it but they respond to it in a way that you perhaps haven't seen before in the in 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 other books i hope so anyway anthony it's interesting you you talking about richard's book there and and sort of feeling the the influence the glow of 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 a lot of those crime novels that have gone before etc there's quite a, a britishness to it and i think in in your novels as well, Anthony, there's there's quite a Britishness in some ways. That's part of their charm, and obviously we're here in the UK, and that's what we know, and that's what we write. But do you have to sort of rewrite these books for transatlantic audiences and take a lot of that Britishness out of it? No, on the contrary, I think the transatlantic and European and you know uh, Asian audiences love these books very much because they're so British and so set in sort of communities that are slightly, as as in Richard's book, slightly um mm. not not quite the norm, slightly to the edge of the norm, little isolated communities. I mean, after all, Midsummer Murders, which I wrote for many years, was a sort of a mm. village of make believe with thatched cottages and village greens and old ladies on tricycles. Never ever really existed, but I think that foreigners in particular like to think of England in that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that, that, that's been the thing for me, because when, uh, when it, the book started selling overseas, I was thinking, oh, what are they going to make it? What are the Americans going to make of it? And the Americans, honestly, they've changed about four words in the whole thing. They love, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a huge draw for them. They didn't understand the big thing. They said, we don't understand what going for a slash means. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Ron, yeah, exactly. Ron, who's the trade union leader at one point, goes into the woods for a slash. And they're like, what? <laughs> Why has he gone into the woods? Uh, so I had to explain that. And I had to explain what having a mooch around was. And oh. that was pretty much it. They love, they love the Englishness. They wouldn't even change the name of Robert Dias. When I was reading the book, on. Richard, I thought you'd actually have to give footnotes because you actually hit so many <laughs> British tropes and sort of, you know, from Waitrose through to sort of Strictly Dancing yeah, and all the, all the things that everybody's talking about in the book. So I thought you'd actually have to have annotations. What, what, what I love in when I read the, the Golden Age fiction stuff from the 30s and 40s and 50s and stuff, I love it when I read a book that is has a real sense of time and place and it's not trying to be universal but it's saying look we are in a 1950s english market town and you know someone goes to the shop so i love that sort of thing so i thought do you know what do you make this timeless and i thought no i'm literally going to write about the world as it is on this particular day and it's fun to read now and in 30 years time you think i hope people look back and just go it has a sort of truth to it if you know what i mean because Mm -hmm. i love reading that stuff about people's daily lives in the 50s and there just happens to be a murder going on underneath it there's there's a lot of references to ryman's and uh, (laughs) nigella and the hairy bikers and all sorts of things throughout (laughs) i admit Um, you're both writers, but you you both have uh, TV backgrounds. You're both heavily involved in in TV adaptations and things. Anthony, you have had 
you wrote Midsummer Murders, as you said, you've wrote Falls War, you've adapted your own things. Is is it important to you as the writer, as a creator of, of these books and characters that you are involved in anything that happens to them, whether that be a screen adaptation or, or another sort of branch of what they do? Only to a certain extent. I think it's a dangerous thing for a writer to assume that he can control a television show or a film or whatever it is, an adaptation of their work. For example, I've just been an executive producer on Point Blank, uh, the Alex Ryder show, and that's mm. been a huge success. And I can't help but feel that that's partly due to the fact that I didn't write it and I didn't try to control <laughs> it and sat back and trusted <laughs> the producer and Guy Burt, the writer and everybody else who've, who've made such a good fist of it. So, you know, I... I because I work in both fields, I can tell if something is going wrong. But so far, touch wood, it never has. Yeah. And, and, and Richard, are you going to be able to be hands off or maybe you don't want to be on this one? Because you have sold the, the rights, haven't you, the film rights? Yes, the film rights. TV. Yeah, I want TV to be hands film. off a film, funnily enough, only because I've worked in TV my whole life. And we had an auction and I turned out, I sort of know, knew so many of the people <laughs> pitching. And I, I thought, <laughs> I'm going to really upset some people. So I thought, do you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to go the film route and it's Amblin as well in the States so nobody's going to mind so that's the route I went but I I, I will say firstly I'll say by the way Foils War is my mum's favourite television programme uh, of all time <laughs> of thank you. all time so, so See, many mums just... amongst my fans Richard thank you <laughs> well, hey listen you and me both Anthony uh, <laughs> but uh, no my view is the same as Anthony's you know I've worked in telly my whole life and it's an incredibly collaborative industry uh, and you have ideas and you have brilliant teams and my experience has been employ the right people and they get the job done they do it properly and in terms of film so Amden are a great company old parker uh is is, is doing the script and, and and signed up to direct and Ol will do a better job than me of writing the script of this book you know and also i want to get on with the second book you know i don't I'd, i would just rather leave it to the professionals and i'll you know i'll dip in and you know he'll be on the phone and ask this that, and the other but these people are brilliant at writing films and i'm i'm not so you just find the right people and and, and leave them to it really yeah yeah uh, and this is the first of what will be a series then richard yeah that's the idea so yeah the, the first one's out on september the third uh, the thursday murder club i'm writing the second one at the moment i'm pretty near the end of the second one which I, I know is weird but all writers will be used to and yeah and everyone who survives the first book returns for the second one so anyone who gets through unscathed um returns and you know it feels to i mean anthony's written all sorts of series and it's just brilliant spending time but when you know the characters already you immediately just think well you can get a great story and then think, oh well how would that character react how would that character react and to me it's been a pleasure. I mean, ask me after six of them, and I'll be like, I'll be desperate to kill all of them off. But at the moment, <laughs> I, I, I wish them all a, a, a very long life. Do you have a title, Richard? For the second one, I don't actually. Which is I was which is interesting the, the, because the Friday Murder Club. I mean, obviously you could then do <laughs> well. I, you know, I mean, it's sort of tempting, isn't it? But uh, that's the interesting thing. I, you know, again, the, the the TV thing. I came up with the title, the Thursday Murder Club, where this retirement British. There's clubs all the time. People meet up and they sort of have you know wine tasting societies and all sorts of stuff and knit and that uh, and stuff. And the second I thought of the Thursday Murder Club, I thought, oh, great, because it's got, it's got murder on the front. It sounds it kind of does all the, all all your work for you. And titles in telly and in books are so important. And in this one, I'm desperately thinking, oh, I mean, the Thursday Murder Club rides again. I mean, you've got to be so careful. To, uh, to kind of send the right messages out. So I wondered, um, Richard, I wondered uh, if you read um, Chesterton at all when you were thinking about title. It struck me as very G.K. Chesterton title. Yes, isn't it? Because of the man, the... Um, exactly. Well, oh, I okay. live, funnily enough, in, in the... What was that book called? The Man Who Was Thursday? I was getting Indeed. quite wrong. And also, of course, The Club of uh, Queer Traits. So, um... But this is where I, I live, where that is set. Literally, I live in ah. the little... 
group group of houses in Chiswick where where he set the man who was Thursday. So I wonder <laughs> if somewhere uh, in, in the back of my mind that was uh, that that was playing with me. I've I've found talking to uh, many authors as I do on on this podcast that. There, there are lots of different approaches to titles and there are some authors that say, you know, I've got to have the title before I can even start mm. writing the book and others that say, oh, I just put something down and then, you know, I'll, I'll work it out at the end. Anthony, what's your um, sort of way into to titles for the books? Do you start with it or do you just start writing it? Um, it depends. I mean, some of the Alex Rider books have begun with a title. I mean, I thought up a title years and years ago, once in the bath, and the title was The Falcon's Malteser. Uh, which is a sort of a, a sort of spoof of my favourite film. It then took yeah. me it took me a year to try and work out a plot that would involve a small packet of chocolates and a large bird, uh, and and so that was a so that was a title coming first. Often I have to spend a lot of time chasing the title. I, it is as Richard correctly says. I mean it is so mm. important. You've got this little advertising space to sell your book with a picture, yeah. your name, and and a title, and that's I think is a big part of the, of, a, of a purchaser's you know choice uh, and what they how they choose. So um, you have to get it right, and I don't know. Why I've been stuck now with M. So I mean, Midsummer Murders I wrote for, for four years, then Magpie Murders, now Moonflower Murders. I really am going to have to move off a letter mm. M. I said, move on in the alphabet or something. But um... did you did your title come first, Richard? I think you you from what you were saying there, it did. It came really early, and that's important to me because I work in telly. You know, titles obviously. You know, with telly, you're coming up with ten shows a year, right? And so titles are, are, are a big deal. And what Anthony said is great because because I, I very rarely hear that from from authors, and I'm a great believer, which is the front page of your book is essentially like an advert. That's what it is, and, and every word really counts. It's really small, and every word um, absolutely counts. Because in telly, so we did a show years ago called Beat the Nation, right? We asked 100 people to answer questions, and that was what the show was based on. And the show didn't mm. really go anywhere, right? But it did all right on Channel 4, had a few series. Uh, we then took exactly the same principle. We asked 100 people, and someone in the room just said, oh, why don't we call it Pointless? And immediately, go, oh, because suddenly you're having Pointless meetings, and you're having a Pointless pitch with the BBC, and you say, no, we could do it with celebrities and call it Pointless Celebrities. And you, suddenly the whole thing takes on a, on, on, on a life sort of bigger than itself. So, listen, if you write a great book, you'll get away with it without a title. But if you've got a great title as well it's an incredible sales tool and if you've written a book you're proud of you want as many people to read it as possible and you want mm. them to come into it in the right mood and right mood is usually set by the front cover and the title which are incredibly important yeah and i work in in radio and i've got this sort of mm. almost awful uh, habit of just writing pun titles down you know, whenever something yeah. comes up, you're probably the same. And I've got this yeah. big list of them, you know, a whole <laughs> list of titles that I can't, I haven't done anything with. Well, yeah. I've just sold a series to Quibi in America, a, a series. I thought I think mm. of a title, which was Nine Bodies in a Mexican Morgue. And they heard that title <sighs> and just said, yes, you'll notice in the Mexican Morgue is still on those damned M's. But, um, yeah, M&M. Um, <laughs> M &M. uh, but wow. anyway, that sold it. And uh, the book I'm writing at the moment, again, the title sort of fell into my lap. Uh, it's another Diamond Brothers show, so I'm actually writing this now. It's called Where Seagulls Dare, and I'm enjoying writing that, if you like your films. Uh, <laughs> nice, yeah, I love a pun. Nice. I, I just can't ever let a pun go. Very shortly, we'll, uh, we'll turn to the book off, where both of you are going to tell us about a book that you love and why we should all read it. Before that, um, Anthony, I just want to come back to you um, because... We are talking about your new book, which is out, but I have learnt from uh, a previous conversation that you're also writing at the moment another Hawthorne novel. Yes, that's right. The, the first one was called The Word is Murder and the Sentence is Death. The next one I think is called The Killer Question. And this is a series of books in which a detective, Daniel Hawthorne, hires a writer to... Um, 
basically tell his story to be his Watson, and the two of them will share the profits. And where the books are peculiar is that the writer he hires is me. So I'm actually in the book as Watson, rather than the author of the book. The author is always the most clever person in the detective story because they know everything from the start. But if you're actually inside the book as the narrator, you know nothing. And that, I think, is interesting and sort of does things to the whodunit form, which I find interesting and, and allow me to sort of write about the genre and about, the, and about what it's like to be a writer. Are there times when, you know, you're writing a, a, a murder mystery, essentially a whodunit, where you just you just can't get what that little twist is or that that one piece of info that's going to bring the whole thing together? No, the hardest thing I find, and I don't wish that Richard has the same problem, but if it is indeed a mm. problem at all, is is to start with the reason for the murder. All murder mystery whodunits begin with a very simple equation. A plus B equals C. A is one person, B is another person, C is the reason why A murders B. And mm. once you've got that, and it's original and interesting, and you start thinking about who those people are and what surrounds them, then the book forms. But I find that the hardest thing, to find something interesting. It can't just be because she was having an affair or he, I wanted his money. It's going to be something sort of more interesting about that. And that's what I find is the hardest part of it. Yeah, I would agree entirely with that. I had uh, absolutely no spoilers, but there was there, there was there was one little thought I had on uh, Thursday Murder Club. I thought, ah, okay, that's interesting. And from there, everything hung off that. So I knew my ending, and I knew I had I had something which I, which which I thought was quite new. And then you, the the fun is build weaving stuff around that. But you know, having your characters and little red herrings and how you hide them, and you know, just sort sort of sort of building that uh, building that puzzle is such an absolute joy. And I think to to, to the original question. The things where you think, well, this bit is impossible. A very good friend of mine, the playwright Lucy Preble, I was talking to her, I mm. said, I've got this thing and it's impossible. And she said, well, that's, that's the book, though. You solve the impossible thing because, you know, if it takes you a week, the readers are not going to solve it, you know, within an hour when they're reading it. So, you know, it's overcoming the impossible bits that makes a book kind of really sing. Does it matter to you, Richard, if your readers guess the ending? Do you, do you get annoyed if someone says, oh, I loved it, but I guess the ending? Or do you think to yourself, well, actually, that's a result? No, I would rather fool them. That's definitely the truth. I would rather, you know, that's... And I think I haven't fooled most people with this thus far. So I would much rather fool them. But if you can work it out, but it's quite complicated to work out, then you're going to feel good about yourself. So, so you'll, you'll like it anyway. So I think if you work it out and it's been hard to work out, you'll enjoy it. And if you haven't worked it out, but it's satisfying, then you'll enjoy it as well. But it's, it's nice to, to, to fool people, Anthony, right? It's nice to think, ah, oh, you didn't spot this, did you? So you know the Shawshank Redemption? Because the, the, the whole thing in a, in, a, in a crime book is hide your MacGuffin, hide the thing that solves the mystery. You know, so it's there throughout, but you hide it. Now, in, 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 the, in Shawshank Redemption, you the thing of the poster on the wall, which goes Rita from Hayworth. Rita Hayworth to Raquel yeah. Welsh. And, and, and so what you think is, because you watch those films, is, oh, that's a passage of time thing. That's a very clever little, that's nice. He's been in there such a long time that the poster has changed. And, of course, that's the MacGuffin. So, he's, you know, it's so clever. <laughs> and it's that beautiful moment as as a viewer or a reader where where it all just sort of slots into place towards the end and you go oh yeah. you bastards <laughs> yeah and especially if you can then read back and go oh you told me mm. you literally told me yeah i love all that yeah yeah hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, it's time for the book off now. And as I said, this is where each of you get uh, three minutes on the clock to tell us about a book that you absolutely love. It doesn't have to be your favourite book. It just has to be something that you think everyone should read at some point in their lives and you don't have to use your full three minutes if you don't want to but when we reach that three minute mark you will either be honked out or even a good old ring uh, so uh, we need to determine who goes first and who goes second we also need to determine uh, the weapons of choice so Anthony would you like to go first or second in the book off well, I, I prefer to go second, actually. I can hear how Richard does it, how a pro does it. <laughs> so you will be second. That means, Richard, uh, you get to choose whether you would uh, uh, like the horn or the bell. I, well, I'll say first how disingenuous that is of Anthony, one of the greatest <laughs> pictures of all time. This is a, a guy who can sum up a concept and an idea in about two sentences and has made an absolute fortune doing it. But uh, I, will, I think I'll go with the bell. I wouldn't want to be honked out. Uh, mm. uh, Very good. Day. Very good. No, that's okay. The the bell it shall be. Uh, and I'll put three minutes on the clock. Before we start it, though, uh, could you just tell us, yeah. Richard, which book you're going to be talking about? My book is Towards the End of the Morning by Michael Frayn. Okay. Um, it's over to you then. You have three minutes if you want it to tell us about this book. Well, firstly, I'll say it's absolutely typical of publishing that you've got three minutes to pitch, which in a, which in a TV pitch would be insane if you can't do it within about... 10 seconds or so um then 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 it's off the table but publishing moves uh, more slowly than that and i would need probably 25 seconds to pitch this book i suspect but i'll be uh, i'll be, be a bit more languorous just for the uh, just for the format um so michael frayne i think is one of the greatest writers in the english language and he can sort of do everything from 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 copenhagen which is an incredible sort of philosophical uh, philosophical play to noises off which is a which is a farce and i think towards the end of the morning is one of the funniest books ever written it's set in the 1960s Fleet Street when that kind of the old days of Fleet Street had just come into the end and a guy called John Dyson is working in the crossword and nature notes department of a, uh, of a small newspaper. And it's a wonderful evocation of that era. But the key thing with John Dyson is he realises he's uh, at the end of a particular time uh, and he wants to move into television. That's his big thing. And Michael Frayne just writes this beautiful novel filled with very believable characters filled with a real sense of time this end of an industry the end of this hard drinking industry something of course now which doesn't exist at all there's nothing in fleet street and also the 
beginning of an industry, which is television and the sort of the slightly huckster people he's, uh, he's he's having to deal with. Throughout this huge comic set pieces, they go on a, on a, on a, on a jaunt abroad. But basically, uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful, elegaic, funny novels you could possibly read. It's very British, uh, again. And Michael Frayn himself says that I think this would be a far more... This goes to what we were just speaking about. He says, I think this would be a much, much, much more successful book if I'd given it a different title. He said, nobody, nobody, even if I just told them, can remember the title towards the end of the morning. It doesn't really mean anything. No one can remember it. Now, in the States, interestingly, they gave it a different title, but it was also unsuccessful because the title in the States was Against Entropy, which, if anything, is even worse. So if you gave this a catchy title, I think it would be up there with a book which does have a catchy title, Scoop, as one of the greatest comic novels uh, in the English language. Fantastic. And that is all I have to say. Wow. Well, you had 30 seconds to spare, uh, but uh, you didn't need it. And what a pitch, indeed. That is brilliant work. Um, We're going to come back and talk about that book, uh, but you get a rest now because I'm putting three minutes back on the clock. So you catch your breath because it's Anthony's turn Anthony won't need three minutes. He won't need three minutes. (laughs) I won't need three minutes on this, I can tell you. You just need to tell us, first of all, what book okay. you're going to be talking okay. about. Okay, well, before I tell you the title of the book, I want to explain something, which is that when you gave me this brief, and incidentally, this is my time starting now, when you gave, okay, me, this brief, um, when you gave me this brief, I misinterpreted it, because when you said the book that everybody ought to read, everybody should read, I thought it's got to be something major, like, you know, my first thought was the Bible or the, you know, or the Quran or something huge. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, what big books have I sort of read in my life that have left stayed with me? And I chose, therefore, for this, Homer's The Odyssey. And <laughs> after what Richard has just so eloquently done, I feel that just sounds like pretentious and sort of terrible. But let me just row back and say that the reason I've chosen it is that I did read it, not of course in the original Greek, but in you know in a translation when I was in my teens or twenties. It has stayed with me for life because it is the first great novel written in Western culture. It is where everything begins. And actually the story of Odysseus, the very fact that everybody now uses the word Odyssey in their language to describe a sort of a journey and a homecoming, it's somehow incredibly primal. It actually takes us back to who we are, where we have come from. And this book, it's not what you think of as just being a sort of a great classic epic poem or whatever you think. It is actually a wonderful story full of fantastic characters. Think, for example, everybody knows the Cyclops, Polyphemus, who is tricked by Odysseus, or Circe, who turns all the men into swine, or Aeolus, who gives um, Odysseus a bag full of the winds, and then one of the sailors opens it just as he's about to arrive home. The winds all release and blow him all the way back to Troy again. And everybody understands that frustration. It's got fantastic female characters in it, um, considering it was written over, you know, it was written in the 8th century BC, so you get to characters like Penelope, who is so strong and so clever, or, or for that matter, Calypso, who keeps Odysseus a, pr- a prisoner for seven years and won't let him go. And there are some wonderful moments in it, the blinding of, of, of the of the polyphemus or, or the death of Ant- Antinous, which is a wonderful piece of writing. So go to the Greek myths and legends, go to the gods and man, understand the world, understand where we've come from. It's where all literature begins. Wow. Fantastic. That was, uh, again, a two-minuter, a, a straight two-minuter there. Uh, <laughs> oh, you, I nice. can tell you both, you've both uh, done quite a lot in TV. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, both, we, we were both stretching that out. We, we'd have done 10 seconds if you'd let us. 
Uh, yeah, I should have had a clock going beside. But instead, I will read the Michael Frayn. I mean, I do love his work. Um, and he's probably the most yeah. versatile writer in the world. You think yeah. this is a man who wrote both yeah. Copenhagen and Noises Off. How is that even possible? Amazing, right? Amazing. Humour in literature is, is, is vastly underrated. You know, being funny is quite difficult. And certainly being funny while still writing a believable novel is underrated. Uh, and, you know, someone like Michael Frayn, he can write anything he wants. But if he wants to be funny, he can be incredibly funny. But it's so hard, isn't it, Richard? It re- genuinely is hard to ro- to be funny in fiction, I think. And I, and I think it sort of mm. can often put put people off because it's so subjective yeah. anyway, comedy, that when you someone says, oh, it's a funny book, people can often say, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. But to do it genuinely brilliantly is a real skill. And it, and it has happened, you know, and I think of something like Cold Comfort Farm that just had me yeah. in stitches all the way through. I haven't read this uh, book by Frayn, and I absolutely want to, having heard you discuss it. Um, right. And, and about, you know, everything that comes with it, the, the fact that it's Fleet Street and it's that sort of end of an era and the TV uh, industry is sort of coming into play and everything. But just, you know, the fact that you can say now, it made me laugh and genuinely laugh. And I think it's it's such a joy to read a funny book when it's done well especially in these yeah, times. Yeah, absolutely right. And Anthony, I mean, the the Odyssey is something that people talk about a lot. Like you say, the actual word Odyssey and the way it's used in our language now, people will, will reference it without really taking it back to Homer. And yet the the statements of, you know, it being the first great uh, novel in the Western world and how, how important it is, the, the fact that there were strong female characters back then, and there, there's a whole host of characters in it that we know and love and we don't know necessarily why we know their names but it's all it's all stems from that wow well i think both great pitches i've got to pick one because that's the game uh and because can i can i can i I give can i I give one final thing for my book above um, (laughs) you may anthony's is much shorter (laughs) the single most underrated thing in literature it's quite short yeah and i Uh, i love a short book I have to say. Yeah. I, well, I do, for, this, for, this, for this age of, you know, everything in bite-sized <laughs> chunks, I suppose, you know, I suppose the Odyssey is asking a little bit much now I think about it. Yeah. But as I say, I, mean, I do you, refer yeah, back I mean, to your earlier question, which is this is a book everyone should read, not that mm. everyone will necessarily enjoy. Oh, God, that wasn't right. It sounded very good. But you know what I mean? It's not about instant pleasure. It's not about instant gratification. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, so, I know so, so, Yeah, and that, that's just the man who's just signed a deal with Quibi. <laughs> yeah, well, there you are. But it, yes, if I did but the Odyssey, I... if I did the Odyssey in eight-minute chunks like Quibi, I'd be writing yeah. it for the next seventy years. <laughs> that's, a good, hey, that's a good pitch, though. Good money in that. Yeah, yeah that's that, hey, that's a that's a nice long long running long form idea right yeah. there, isn't it? Um, no, but you're right, Anthony, and, and everyone interprets it exactly how they want. And you are right; it's it's obviously a very important book, and everyone should read it just to say they have as well. So I'm going to pick for uh, today's book off. I'm I'm gonna take home the Michael Frame because uh, I need a laugh. Basically, that's that's I'm in I'm yep. in the mood. We all for do a laugh. right now. That's for sure. And um, if I can get a laugh in, in under a couple of hundred pages, then then that's even better. Oh, perfect, yeah. Um, thank you 
both so much for joining me, for taking the time, for your brilliant insights into writing and, and those brilliant pictures as well. Both books are, are out now and I hope that listeners will devour them like I have because I really, really enjoyed reading them and spending time with your characters. Richard, what's uh, next for you then in terms of, you said, you know, back to studio pretty soon. So by the time people are listening to this podcast, you're probably already in there. Yeah, September, hopefully we'll be we'll, we'll be back on there with, with, with another 100 uh, Richard Osmond's House of Games, which is a great fun show to do great probably back in studio uh with with pointless in december as well and hopefully i'll be writing the third book fantastic uh and the thursday murder club by richard osman is out now and it's published by viking and anthony what what is next for you on on top of the hawthorne that you're writing are we uh, are we going to see anything else from you just um, as I say, Magpie Murders is my sort of main occupation, and we hope to start choosing that in January, February. So I'll be working on that for for that time, and then writing writing the Hawthorne and and whatever else comes my way. Moonflower Murders, all the M's by Anthony Horowitz is out now as well. That's published by Century, uh, and they are both absolutely fantastic reads, as I said. So uh, get yourself a copy of each one and enjoy. Uh, Anthony, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.